This is a Siku University Australia podcast, where we talk to some of the university's interesting characters. It's National Science Week, and in celebrating, today I'm chatting with a Siku Uni scientist who made huge news this year as one of the team members who rediscovered Wallace's giant bee a big deal in the science world. The news generated an enormous amount of buzz with science publications, journals and media from across the globe reporting on the significant finding. Hello and welcome to The Grapevine, a Seeky University podcast. I'm Izzy Symes and today I'm speaking with Professor Simon Robson. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for joining me. You are welcome. First of all, for those listening who may not be familiar with your involvement in the giant bee finding, tell me about that experience. Well, it was a fantastic experience. It was We were looking for a bee that had been only been found uh, twice. Uh, it was discovered in a very remote part of the world. It was the world's largest bee, and many people had tried to find it unsuccessfully. So a group of us from Australia and the US got together and decided uh, in our holidays we'd go look for it. And we found it. Pretty uh, exciting feat to be able to find it after so long of it being considered disappeared. Yes. How, how was that moment in time for you? It was incredible. I think we all thought that our chances were about 10% of finding it. So we literally sort of ran around screaming and hugging each other and then desperately raced to the cameras to take photos and then took really bad photos and better and better photos so that we could prove that we had actually rediscovered it. And um, it made it generated so much, as I said in the intro, um, buzz around the world. Um, how did you take that uh, newfound publicity? <laughs> uh, well, it's always nice to know that people are interested and like what you're doing. And, and I think it was really a good news story because we hear of many species going extinct and this was a, a great rediscovery story. And I think that's part of why it was so interesting to, to so many people around the world. Has the excitement continued behind the scenes for you? It, uh, it has, yes. I still get uh, contacted by various media and we're hoping to work with the uh, appropriate authorities in Indonesia to, to learn more about this bee and make sure it's protected. Fantastic. Now, um, digressing from the bee for a little bit, um, let's rewind a little and find out about young Simon. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your childhood and upbringing. Well, um, I grew up sort of on the edges of cities and in farms. My father is in the agriculture department. I've always been interested uh, in animals. So the types of animals has changed over time, but I really see myself as a biologist. I like being outside. I look, like looking at things and I like understanding the biological world around us. So I grew up in northern New South Wales, went to school there, then I went across the, the border. So one of the few people to go across to Brisbane and I, I studied there and then I went to the US and uh, studied for a PhD okay. in the US on a, supported by a Fulbright Fellowship, which okay. was really nice. Wonderful. So biology, what is it that excites you about that um, area? Um, it's never-ending, it's diverse, it's fascinating, the sorts of things that animals do. I think our understanding of what animals do is really limited by only our own perceptions of the world. So we continually learn more and more about what animals can do and plants can do. We now know that plants can communicate with other plants mm -hmm. and they have alarm calls and all this sort of stuff, but it's a very sort of different frame frame. So I think by looking at biology and trying to understand different systems that ultimately you learn a lot about yourself and how humans think and perceive the world. 
Mm-hmm. So you did your Fulbright overseas. Yeah. Um, what brought you back to Australia and perhaps where you are? Well, part of taking the funds from the Fulbright was the requirement to come back to Australia afterwards. So that was okay. <laughs> um, at that stage, I was very interested in ants and the group. There wasn't a lot known about them, but... Uh, in Townsville, it's the university that was the closest to those ants. They're basically tropical ants. Mm-hmm. So I came to Townsville as a researcher, as a postdoctoral fellow, uh, to study those ants. And there's so much biology in North Queensland that there really has yet to be a reason to leave the region. Mm-hmm. So where I may have moved to universities and now associated with CQU, I'm still engaged with that same research. Okay. And what about um, family life? Family life, um, probably like most parents, I think my kids are too crazy busy. Um, They do very well at sport and at university and music and all that sort of stuff. So I have a daughter who's just started her first year at uh, at ANU Mm -hmm. and a son in year 11 and my wife who also works in Townsville at a university. Yeah, so no plans on leaving Townsville anytime soon? Um, well, my son will be finished school in a couple of years, and I think that's the point where probably people begin to think, what, what are we going to do now? Mm-hmm. You know, the kids have left the nest, so we're thinking, we're beginning to have those thoughts now. I guess the beauty about also being with CQ Uni is that we're spread across a, an array of locations, yes. so um, you could move with us, so to speak. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and it's very easy to interact with CQ even if you're not sitting right on the campus. Tell me a little bit about that. Your um, work for us, for CQ University as a professor, um, but you're also still doing a fair bit of research outside? Yes. So um, I have an adjunct position here. Mm -hmm. So I've taught uh, a class last semester for you and looking forward to having some more involvement in that. And that association means that I still have uh, have access to libraries and research and those sorts of things. So that makes it easy to do work. So uh, two weeks ago, for example, I had two colleagues came out from a university uh, in Israel. Oh, wow. They're working on um, sort of robotics and engineering and ants. And so they were working and they uh, collected lots of green tree ant colonies. So people in Townsville may have seen people screaming, running around the neighborhoods covered with ants. Well, that was us. Uh, we managed to take back about 20... 20 live colonies to Israel and they'll be working on them there. So the link to CQU makes it easy to, to get those permits, gives you that authority and I think most most academics never really stop anyway. They just keep doing the lots of things. So there's I, I still have many students that I'm helping in writing papers and mm-hmm. providing some consultancies for local companies. So I'm busy. Yeah, wonderful. That... Um Research sounds really interesting, the green ants and mm. robotics. How how did those two fields intertwine? Well, they fit together really, really well. So when people first started uh, thinking about robotics, um, they thought about them as very much having a brain like a human. So one of the first tasks people wanted robots to do was to clean the house, for example. Don't and, we all? Yes, don't we all. <laughs> and so then they started thinking, okay, so a robot needs to know what's rubbish or not. And they spend a lot of time working on the eyes and the visions of robots, and they're still working on that. And then a, a guy who's perhaps more familiar with biology said, well, why don't we just have something that wanders around the world, picks up everything and puts, takes it back and puts it into a garbage. So it doesn't have to know if it's rubbish or not. And it turns out most of the time that works really well. And if it's grabs something you want, you just go to the garbage and get it anyway. 
So that robot does exactly what we want it to do, but it doesn't have to have the brain or the perception of what is rubbish. It doesn't have to recognise a scrumpled Coke can, a crumpled Coke can from 87 million different angles. It just picks things up. And it turns out that lots of uh, social insects, like ants and bees, they have very simple brains, but they do they can achieve the sorts of things we want to achieve without having a brain the size of ours. And they achieve it by the way they communicate by lots of them. And so there's a very interesting field in collective robotics that says instead of having one amazing robot that can see everything, which is sort of what they've done on the uh, lunar lander, those sorts of things, or Mm -hmm. the Mars lander. So you put all the brain in one spot, but then if it falls over on a rock, it's stuffed. So there's a different view is instead of spending a billion dollars on a robot that looks for water... Why not buy a billion robots at a dollar each and just throw them over the whole surface of Mars and all they do is tell you if they're sitting on water? Yeah, right. And so social insects together can achieve very clever things, but they do it in a very different way. So when we're coming to programming computers, um, it means we don't have to have such complicated equipment that we think because we're not, not actually trying to recreate a human. We're trying to recreate something that can do the same task. And social insects have had hundreds of millions of years to figure out how to do that. So and, fascinating. And the green tree ants are amazing that we have in Townsville. I know people hate them in their backyards, but they're <laughs> absolutely fantastic that they can pull leaves together, they can make nests, um, they use workers as silk, they form living chains to pull leaves together. Mm-hmm. They can build a nest, a home, out of almost any different shape substrate. It doesn't matter what the shape of the leaf is, they can do it. Mm-hmm. But they clearly don't have a builder's recipe for millions of things. So how do they do that? And that's what we're trying to understand. It's amazing. It's you know, I guess it's telling us something about colonies and communities as yes. well, isn't it? You, yeah, it is. And so you, the fact that you have lots of these relatively simple individuals interacting just based on what's going on around them, as a group, they can really achieve incredible things. Mm. Which, if you think about it from a human perspective, very much yes. groups and communities. Groups and communities can, can achieve incredible things. That's right. And so while we tend to have a top-down view, so, you know, we'll have the head of the university and the head of the difference, they're very much bottom-up, individual workers just working together. Yeah, amazing. Um, and I guess that that draws back to your passion with biology and all of these different um, findings. That I think it's get. a sense of discovery. Yeah. You know, there is... The world's always been out there and it's always looked like that, but how you, it's how you interpret it that causes switches in, in, in your understanding of it. Yeah. Simon, from a, um, continuing on from a personal perspective, I understand that aside from gallivanting to Indonesia while there's a flood happening in Townsville <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> to be your passion, um, what, what keeps you going from a personal perspective? What do, you, what, do you, what do you enjoy doing in your downtime? I just like knowing things, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. So I read a lot. I've become even more voracious reader. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never got too much into history, so I'm enjoying that and, and language. I'm terrible at language. So there's there's lots of things. I'm thinking, you know, there must be hundreds of famous books that I haven't read most of them, so I've got to start. I've decided not to, with the exception of some statistics manuals, <laughs> I'm not going to reread a book ever again. It's Time's too short. Very true. And I've also decided to give my books away. Uh-huh. So I have big libraries, but... Um, 
given that I'm not going to read them again, I'll make the kids read some of them, and then I'm just going to give them to people. Yeah, good on you. What um, what makes doing research and what you do worthwhile? Um, personally, or for society as a whole, or both. Well, I've always, I've often worked on obscure animals, you know, bats and ants, and so I've often been faced with the question, what value is that? And my, you know, my first immediate response is, well, it's of great value to me because it keeps me off the streets, and so <laughs> that's probably a good thing. But, you know, when we learn these different things, it's just, it's an architecture for a, a greater good, I think. So the skills that you get by being able to see things differently um, and advance knowledge, you know, they're, they're transferable across everything. And I think one of the great things about the B story was how much people liked it. You know, the fact that 20% of the world's population was exposed to that story was just amazing. And I think it was because it was a, a good news story. And most people like bees for some reason. They don't like insects or spiders and stuff. <laughs> but for some reason, people like bees. Maybe they're seen as useful. And they are becoming more of a topical type insect um, yes. as well because of, I think, more so maybe the honeybee. But Yes, and they are important, you know, pollinators environment. That's so, right. The, you know, personally, there's a lot of satisfaction. Uh, and I love teaching students and seeing them, you know, the light go on. But I could also... You know, you have to be able to explain what you do, particularly when lots of your funding comes from tax base. So, you know, I can talk at various levels about how our understanding of how ants go in and out of colonies in those trails but don't run into each other has been used to set up um, telephone switching networks around the world. Wow. And how the movement of ants and how they choose targets helps us understand the behaviour of people in queues. Yeah. And that builds safer buildings. So getting in and out of um, football stadiums and places where it's really crowded, you might see the odd metal post in the no, and you wonder what that's doing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it can serve to split the traffic and this yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. And so we really learn, there's a lot that we can learn about, you know, all of the biological world because it's been doing it for you know 2.8 mm. 3.2 billion years mm. life has been surviving the cha- an, an ever challenging world mm-hmm. so i think we can learn a lot from that exactly which ties which brings me to the fact that it is national science week and mm. science being such an important part of life yes. um what do you find so important about science um I think it's an efficient... Well, there's lots... What do I find so important about science? <laughs> well, the idea that you can sort of stand on the shoulders of other... And it's not just science, but mm. the humanity. So the knowledge that's being gained is is more and more accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. And so we really are living on the back of... I'm not sure how long humans have been around, you know, Homo sapiens, less than a million years or something. I mean, even that area, just, you know, so many different types of humans turning up now and being able to understand our history and movements around the world and the significance of rare events and things like that. So I think it's a great framework to understand the world. I certainly don't don't know that it's... Um, it's, it's certainly not the only framework to understand the world. Uh, the humanities have what to do. And I know in Singapore, they've Singapore's very business and science orientated, and now they're forcing, I believe they're forcing their science students and business students to take some humanities and art subjects because they need to be a little bit more creative. There you go. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, I think science is one of the 
if you think of what's achieved in our understanding of the world, uh, it's amazing. And you look back now, you know, with the 50th anniversary of, of the lunar landing, and you see that photo Earthscape, and it's hard now to think. So that's that's the picture they looked across the surface of the moon, and there was the Earth looking as we normally see it. It's hard to imagine the impact that that would have had on people, but I think um, it would have had an incredible impact. On there, all of a sudden, was just this one planet in a huge black domain, mm-hmm. this very special planet, mm. and that you know it was science that got that photo. Very true. And, and the people, of course, also that yeah. went with it. But yeah. a lot of science. So there's lots of fantastic movies about, you know, the great one about the women that did the maths. Um, what's that movie called? Three women that did a lot of the maths by handsome African-American women. So overcoming prejudice and working for NASA. Uh-huh. Fantastic yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I do know the one you're talking about. I'm terrible at the <laughs> title. So. <laughs> um, so, I mean, here's a million-dollar question for mm. you, um, possibly a little bit of a left swing for you. You're a biologist. Yep. What is your absolute favourite animal? I have two. Yeah, go for it. One is a small bat. Oh. That I was fortunate enough when I was an undergraduate to discover caught fish. Okay. And that started my career off into working on bats. So that's called... um, it's a myotis, it's a large-footed myotis that lives on the east coast of Australia okay. and it collects insects from the surface of the water and it occasionally collects um, uh, fish as yeah. well. So that's a very gentle thing. And then um, there's an ant, there's a genus of ant called polyrachis that I love and that I've done a lot of work on that. And I don't know why, they're kind of a happy ant, they don't sting you, they're very gentle and they look a little bit like Astro Boy. <laughs> I, I was an asteroid boy. They've just got this sort of round head. Okay, there you go. And but they're amazing ants. I mean, there's one ant in South America. It's big eyes, big jaws, hard to find. And its you'll never guess the name of it. Its scientific name is Giganteops Destructor. That's my favourite ant name. Oh, I love it too. Yeah, a great name, Giganteops Destructor. We'll have to try and find a photo of it to pop it up with this podcast. Yes, so there'll be one on the it. web. Yeah, yeah. Um, for some reason, and I don't know why, your two responses were not what I was expecting. Oh, and I don't know. Expect- I don't know what I was expecting to be honest. But it makes complete sense now <laughs> that it's a, it's a bat and, a, and an ant. <laughs> I've seen a tree kangaroo in the Huon Peninsula, which is one of the most gorgeous animals out mm-hmm. there. It's this beautiful white. It lives on, uh, high up in the trees and eats um, little white orchids. It's oh. this, it looks like a teddy bear. It's this beautiful white golden. It's oh, that sounds very cute. But, yeah, I could keep going. I like them all. Yeah, yeah, you'd have to. <laughs> They're all fantastic. Simon, what's next for you? Don't know. Don't know? I've got lots of odds and ends I want to do. Actually, I want to become an ant taxonomist. Okay. I'm not sure I'm up to it, but you need to have a certain mind. So what would that involve? Well, it involves um, cataloguing new species Mm -hmm. and going through the whole process of convincing the world that it's a new species. So you have to see all the specimens, and it's a very rigorous way of doing things, Mm -hmm. sort of formulaic in a way, which I like. And I think one of the challenges that I've been very fortunate to have known some excellent 
taxonomists. Otherwise, I really wouldn't have a clue what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, is this species? And that, that's important to know what the species you're looking at. And a very dear friend of mine, Rudy Cahoo, who passed away a few years ago, made fantastic advances in the taxonomy of polyrhachis globally and within Australia. Yeah. And he's got two manuscripts that, as he said, he didn't get to finish before he kicked the bucket. Oh. And there are about 100, 150 undescribed species. Now, I think he's done all the hard work. So he's decided, using his vast knowledge, which ones are new species, and he's got the photographs. And so what I'm hoping to do is just go and finish that. Pick up with him. In honour of him. It'd be a shame to end it, and then just make sure it all gets published. Oh, wow. That's a fantastic way to um, end this podcast, I I guess. Um, All the very best with that. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time today. It's been lovely. You are welcome. Like this podcast? Don't forget to rate, review and share with your friends.